This episode of InsureTech Insider is proudly brought to you by Deloitte. They are focused on uniting the bright ideas from InsureTech with large-scale traditional carriers and everything in between, bringing their wealth of industry experience and technology know-how into the mix and helping to drive the pace of change and transform insurance as we know it. Welcome to InsureTech Insider News. I'm David Breer, and this episode is coming to you all the way from New York. Today's show is a new show, taking a look at the biggest news stories in insurance and insurtech in the US over the last few weeks. As always, I'm not alone, but joined by some super duper awesome guests, all making a big impact in the insurtech scene here in New York. First up, we have Gillian Williams, investment principal at Anthemus. How's it going? Doing well, thanks, David. Um, for anybody who doesn't, I mean, must have probably been under a rock for the last sort of five to 10 years, but tell us a little bit about Anthemus. Yeah, of course. So Anthemus is an early stage fintech-focused venture capital firm. We're based between New York and London, have been around for about 10 years, um, and we really focus seed series A across financial services, insurance, real estate, and a lot of technologies that are adjacent to the space as well. Uh, we make investments in the US and Europe. We have a portfolio of about 100 plus companies across those two regions. And some pretty cool companies in those 100 as well, right? Yeah, definitely. We think so. <laughs> and you, I mean, I, I sort of came across you guys first with sort of corporate ventures that you guys do as well. Do you want to kind of expand on that a little bit? Yeah. Because there's a lot of there's a lot of insurance companies like these guys might be your customers, like sell it, to me, sell it. Exactly. We really come about at it with a thesis that, especially from the early days, we're not going to replace the large incumbents right away. And so there's a lot more need to actually work with them. Um, and so the way that we invest is sort of twofold, where one, we have a traditional venture arm, which is the side of the business that I sit on. But then we also have what we call investment partnerships, but it's really kind of like corporate venture as a service. So single LP funds with different uh, corporates. So we have uh, one with Balois, a Swiss insurance company over in London. Um, and with that, we kind of work with them to develop a thesis of what they're very interested in. But then we really do all the investing, the sourcing, uh, and it's more so with sort of their guidance and what's relevant to them, but still very much focused on the financial returns and really sort of like learnings for them. Mm. Yeah, I mean, it's a place a lot of people want to, I mean, investment as a service, yeah, right? It's great. Exactly. All right. Uh, next up, we have Daniel Schreiber, who is the CEO and co-founder over at Lemonade. How's it going? So far, so good. Are you a Dan or a Daniel? I'm a Daniel. My mother would not. Take kindly to call me in. Okay, I'll stick to Daniel then. That'd be go. fine. Um, how's it going? Like busy times for you. Without we'll sort of foreshadowing, foreshadowing. We'll get onto in a little bit, right? It, it's been busy for a few years now, <laughs> <laughs> and hoping to be busy for many years to come. But having a lot of fun. Excellent. And finally, we have Brett Lotito, who is the VP of Insurance Operations at Oscar. How's it going? Great. Thanks for having me. I mean, for anybody who doesn't know, do you want to tell us a little bit about what Oscar does and, and what you guys are up to right now? Sure. Um, Oscar is a direct-to-consumer health insurance uh, company pairing consumer engagement with technology. Uh, we currently have roughly 420,000 members across 29 markets all in the U.S. Uh, our operations are housed uh, mostly here in New York City and in Tempe, Arizona. Um, I've been with Oscar roughly five years at this point, um, running most of our back office operations. 
Busy times. Well, thank you very much, for everybody, to come together. All right, let's get on with what's been going on lately then. So first up, we have a story over on Live Insurance News, which is Lemonade Gets Into Pet Insurance. So this is Lemonade is getting into pet insurance. I mean, if only we had somebody on the show to talk about this one. Shall I just hand over to you, Daniel, and you can tell us a little bit, and then we can maybe talk about insur- uh, pet insurance in a much sort of broader sense. Sure. So Lemonade has has been in market for just over three years, and we've really been focused so far on homeowners and renters insurance, predominantly in the US, but we've launched in Europe and we'll be expanding in Europe as well. Um, And while we, I think, are conceived of and and generally perceived as being a a renters homeowners company, that's never how we self-conceive. We really think of ourselves as being a customer-centric insurance company, thinking what are our customers' needs and trying to address them one at a time. And in that sense, we're falling short because we provide them with great renters and homeowners insurance, but that's all we've provided them with. And we force them to really go to our competitors for rounding out their insurance um, needs. So we'd really like over the course of the coming years to flesh out, round out the offering um, with, again, the customer in the center and just asking ourselves, what else do they need? And we see a lot of pent-up demand all over the place. You go to Google Trends and you have a look at what people are searching for with Lemonade, and you'll see that they search for Lemonade auto insurance with the same frequency as Lemonade homos and insurance and other things. So we get a, a decent sense that there's a, a fair amount of pent-up demand for other kinds of insurance. Pet insurance is a nice one. Um, something like two-thirds or even more of our customers are pet parents. Mm. Um, in the US, this is a, a woefully underserved market. You come from the UK where almost half... Uh, pet owners have pet insurance, but in the US, less than 2% do. And it really is thinking of pets as members of the family, which has been an evolution over recent years and decades. Certainly, that kind of perception has changed. How we think about our pets has changed. Mm. Pet insurance, actually, the history of pet insurance is horse insurance in the Nordics back in the late 1800s, but that was basically car insurance. Mm-hmm. <laughs> your horse was your car. That's very true. Yeah. And so the idea that if your pet, the, the, the perception that a pet is a piece of property does not jive with how pet parents think of it. They yeah. think of it as much more as a, as a member of the family. Well, you, as you say, parents, right? People, That's right. They are a part of your family. So. And if the pet is sick, you don't replace the pet, you treat the pet. And that can come to a, a tremendous amount of, you know, mm-hmm. it can be tens of thousands of dollars. Um, so quite aside from the, 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 the ongoing treatment and, pet, and vet visits, there is this kind of real insurance needs of there can be some terrible... Um, unwelcome surprises that also come with a big price ticket attached Mm. to that. So we're trying to take the lemonade approach, the simplicity, the bots, the give back, all the components that make um, lemonade um, appeal to our consumers within the renter space, homeowner space. We want to bring all of that to bear on the next category, and and pet is the one that we've chosen. Category. Nice. like what you did there. Was that a pet? pun that you sort of dropped I'll take in. credit for it. Fine, yeah, that was yeah, good. <laughs> I mean, and it, and it says you're, I mean, you're exclusively looking at cats and dogs to start with. I, mean, I guess that's, I mean, unless you've got like some strange snake kind of pets that, you, you know, it's a good place to start because you're covering a lot of the sort of bases. But I mean, do you guys have any pets? I do not. No? <laughs> no. You, I, I'm a dog owner. Okay. I mean, I, I have one too. I mean, do you ever take him into the office? Like I, I took my uh, Jake, my dog, into the office last week and basically everybody ignored me for the entirety of the week. Like <laughs> it's just, you know, they're far cuter and people kind of love them. So it's, like you say, it's just p- part of your family, right? Yeah, I think we'd love to and many of our employees would love to be able to bring their pets into our office. Unfortunately, the way our building codes are, we don't allow them and there are many allergies and it causes quite a disruption. Right. <laughs> uh, so unfortunately, we can't let our uh, bring our pets, but I, I would love to be able to because it's certainly, uh, like you mentioned, is, is a part of the family and makes things just a little bit less stressful having your pet around. Yeah, it, it literally was that. It was like in meetings, people being able to 
pet Jake. It, I, it, you know, it was like the good news, bad news thing. It was like, here's some bad news, but I brought my dog. It'll be, it'll be fine. So, I mean, it's it's super interesting as you as well. You said it's like this is something that your consumers want. I mean, not just off Google result, uh, you know, SERPs, but actually, it's amazing how many different things when you set a different standard for what insurance is, people will start asking for that level of service on so many other things, right? Well, we certainly hope so. Um, we haven't proven out the thesis, and we do um, take an experimentalist approach to things, and we're willing to launch things that will fail as well, and hopefully this isn't one of them. But it's not a bet-the-company kind of move that you have to torture yourself over it. We are a vertically integrated company in the sense that we control the brand and the consumer experience and the technology and the regulatory environment. And when you have all of those components, launching something like pet insurance um, is something that you can do entirely in-house, reasonably quickly, um, and in line with the same experience, the same flow, the same values that have categorized the other products. So I think definitely a bet worth placing, hopefully one that pays off. Mm. It's interesting you chose pet insurance. And I'd wonder if just because of how much money is going into the pet tech space broadly. And uh, as we said, is, pets is, is be- pet tech a thing? It is. Oh, is yeah. it? Oh, man. $520 million that went into it in 2018. Wow. And just the I- amount that people are willing to spend on their pets, if you think about sort of like the farmer's dog, which is like more organic and healthier food for your dog and all the vet uh, startups that are popping up as well. You just see how much people care about their pets, think that they're part of the family and willing to spend on it. So I assume like that had something to do with the rationale for going into it. Absolutely. And um, clearly an underserved market. Um, So that does present a challenge because unlike homeowners insurance or health insurance where people have a very high level of awareness that this is something that they need there is an awareness gap but we'll start off by um, addressing our existing customer base we've got over 700,000 customers at the moment and we'll start by talking to them um, see if it works well there then we'll expand it elsewhere I mean something that I, I guess you guys have been sort of famed for is kind of use of artificial intelligence with the stuff that you've done in in other lines I mean how are you sort of bringing that in? I I mean, I know this, it's sort of early, but can you talk about that at this stage? In broad strokes, yeah. So some of the elements will be borrowed directly over. So Maya, our bot who sells other lines of insurance is going to sell pet insurance in exactly the same fashion. Um, Jim, who pays our claims, um, is learning how to pay these claims as well. But a lot of our AI experience is really trained by the data sets that are created by humans. So the AI is looking proverbially over the shoulder of the humans doing the work, and then it learns. So there's some things that it will know how to do straight off the bat and others that it will learn um, as the data sets get created. But I think this is naturally extensible. It is interesting, and this is a an, kind of a, a segue perhaps to throw it your way, Brett, that for us, while it is in terms of the category, from a regulator's point of view, in most states, this is categorized as something called inland marine, which is a form of uh, a PNC insurance. The, the names in insurance are just hysterical. Um, but in every other sense, it really is health insurance. Mm. Um, we think of it as health insurance for your pets. It's not really about the pet either causing damage, which we insure under the renters. If, the, if your pet bites the neighbor, that's liability insurance, and we take care of that separately. If your pet is run over or runs away or whatever, that's also not, this is really about health insurance for pets. Mm. Yeah, and um, 
I think it, it's true for nearly all types of insurance. Insurance is complicated. There's lots of rules and regulations that we all have to follow, and there's lots of fine print that people sign up for these. And it would be incredibly important, whether it's health insurance or in pet insurance, that when people sign up and they're they're sold on these, they, they know what they're buying into and they know what to expect, right? Because so when that issue happens and when your pet sick and you know a member of your family is sick and you have to go get them that care, you know they're uh, it's a very emotional time, and then throw on a large bill on top of it just added stress, and I think it could provide like. Some complexity and probably a lot of education, and you know, be very clear on you know what to expect and and uh, of what's covered, and not covered, and and how to engage and uh, have the support that they need when um, an issue does come up, because mm. uh, it it will right, and uh, it's, I guess probably different than your other lines of business on the home homeowners or renters. Um, Probably not likely that every year that every member you have has a claim, um, but it's pretty likely that they will be bringing their pet to the vet. And is that something that uh, will be covered and they expect to interact with you uh, on? And uh, are all of the strategies that work so well, and speaking as a customer of Lemonade, who loves the app, loves the interactive experience, and how quickly I'm able to get my questions answered and solved quickly and make changes to, to my plan and policy, uh, do th- are those strategies going to be as effective in these emotionally charged, potentially uh, situations. I, I think you, you make a great point, and that is the challenge, and thank you for your business. Mm-hmm. Um, one thing that we were able to do in PET that we've not really cracked in the US in homeowners, we have in Europe, but the policy is really so convoluted. This is something that's just, it's a kind of an embarrassment, because we use industry standard policy language for various reasons, regulators like it, reinsurers and other people. Um, but this is just an archaeological nightmare of kind of layer after layer of middle English words that nobody could really understand. I'm a recovering attorney and I can barely make my way through our contract. And if you do that, it's like, it takes an hour long to read. Um, and it's got exceptions and exceptions to exceptions. And every exception is really an opportunity for resentment by customers. And these are really some of the challenges that we as an industry face. In in renters insurance, we tried something um, which we're still working on. And in Germany, we actually launched, which is what we called policy 2.0 which was to say, we're going to scrap that. 100 years of policy, right? We're going to write this thing absolutely from scratch. We're going to take the legal risk by not using legal terminology, but using commonplace words. We're going to write it like a blog post. Um, And then we posted it on GitHub and we opened it up for the public. We said it's open source. Any of our competitors may use it and anybody may help us by iterating on this Wikipedia style. Anybody can go in and edit it. And in the US, our pet policy will be the first policy that we launch using that kind of methodology. So what we call policy 2.0. So plain language, very simple, um, preferring simplicity and accessibility over the nuances that make actuaries happy but make consumers unhappy. And that's the trade-off that we've made. And that's one of the nice things that we'll be launching with our pet policy. It's very cool. That makes such a difference. I mean, like actual documents for human consumption is, I mean, I think a lot of, and this, I mean, insurance and banking has definitely lost its way in that way. It's uh, most of the communication you get is just not fit for human consumption, which is just kind of weird, isn't it? I'm not sure the pets will be able to read it though, right? So you'll have to work on that one next. I mean, the, the I guess the thing in health insurance is the, the move towards preventative, right? So actually everything that comes with wearable, I mean, are we going to start seeing like, dog wearables because essentially the best way to sort of prevent them getting sick is to be in a situation where you can actually you know make sure they're healthy or to your point eating the right thing i mean i'm pretty sure my dog has been to the vets like three times since the last time i went to the doctor and eats definitely way better than i do so uh 
Yeah, I think there's probably a, a ton of opportunity there uh, to influence and engage uh, your consumer's behavior uh, earlier in uh, the you know their pet's life cycle to give them that preventative health benefits and and coverage and care, uh, or potentially coverage, but at least care and incentivize that care because that will reduce hopefully the cost of their um, you know their episodes later in life, whether it be teeth or in joint repair and all of those things. If they are not uh, you know you don't have that preventative maintenance <laughs> of of your of your car, but uh, of your um, you know, of your family, then it will be a, a big price tag down the road. Yeah. I mean, if Apple can sell me another aluminum little bit of kit, then I'm pretty sure it'll be strapped to my pet. So, uh, <laughs> all right, well, let's uh, move on to the next story then. So there's a, the next up, we have a story over on Engadget. This is Ford slides into the insurance business. So this is Ford hopes you will trade some privacy for discounted car insurance. So Ford is teaming up with Nationwide to introduce its own take on usage-based insurance. If you own a 2020 Ford, I don't know what that means. Is that the big one? That's like a big pickup thing, right? I think it's a model year. So built in, built in 2020. Oh, okay. Not the, like the huge like flat back things. Show my ignorance. I sound more English now than I've ever done ever in my entire life. Uh, or Lincoln Models, another make of car in America, didn't know. Uh, you can sign up for a policy that uses the vehicle's built-in modem to track your driving habits and adjust your rates accordingly with each renewal. I mean, what do you guys think of this? I mean, telematics is sort of not something new, but the fact that it's starting to be sort of built into the kit and provided by the the actual manufacturer. I mean, is this is this something new in this space? So it's not something new. I think in the UK, there's a company called Buy Miles. Um, in our portfolio, actually, we had Automatic, which was acquired by Sirius XM, so that had sort of the dongle that was in your car. So I think it's newer that this is kind of built into the car, but I think it's definitely the future of how at least I and us at Anthemus view what's going to happen with car insurance. Um, so especially as, and seeing how long it takes, but autonomous vehicles, uh, come into play and people actually begin to be able to use them, I think it's very likely that because these OEMs have actually built the technology, they understand the risk. And so they can actually start underwriting the vehicles and the risk themselves. Mm. Um, and actually, for the most part, cut out the insurance uh, companies and maybe be able to partner with reinsurers um, for the risk, but really being able to do it themselves. And so this, I mean, they're working with Nationwide, but seems like that early step of all right, let's actually be able to track a lot of this data ourselves and be able to provide the insurance sort of one, as soon as you buy the car rather than you having to buy a car insurance policy mm. later on. Yeah, yeah. I, I completely well, agree. What do you think, Brad? I, I think it's a really innovative way to help get over the barrier for consumer engagement with your car insurance, right? You know, speaking as a, a, car, a car owner and a car insurance haver, like I don't like to engage with my insurance company unless I have to, and it's usually because I have a claim, and then it's a lot of like, you know, just negative perception of fighting back and forth to get things covered. Here's a great way to leverage the brand of the car manufacturer, which you already are signing up to and getting the car, uh, in a way to engage with the insurer for uh, give them the mechanism to potentially incentivize better behavior, but through safer driving habits, mm. which is you know, better for all of us and uh, hopefully lower risk and that they can get better rates. And then uh, it's a great way to, to get over that barrier for consumer engagement. I think there's a couple of things, I agree with what you said, but a couple of things that occur to me. One is there is this kind of secular shift potentially f building on what Julian was saying from um, a, a consumer-facing product of insurance to a commercial product. So the kinds of there's still a risk to underwrite, but rather than people buying it, companies are buying it, and that is potentially disastrous for quite a few major brands for whom auto insurance is really their bread and butter. 
And you can see that on a secular demise over the course of the next 10 years or however many years it takes. But if you're sitting around the board of a company that it predominantly sells car insurance, that's a bit of a wake-up call. The other thing um, that I just wonder about, basing, uh, 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 riffing a bit on what you're saying, Brett, is whether brands like Ford really want to be associated with insurance. Insurance companies are not the most beloved brands out there. And when you're spending all this money creating this lovable brand for Ford or whatever car you're trying to do, Tesla's moved into this space and doing some stuff as well. Um, sure, you have the technology, you know what's going on, it's your autonomous engine that's driving the car. But when you decline a claim, um, are you willing to take that ding in terms of NPS and customer satisfaction levels? And are, are you really set up to do that? Yeah, I mean that is that is a difficulty, right? It's um, similar to Apple getting into credit cards, right? There's a yeah. it's all good until it goes wrong, and then you've got the perception from your brand's perspective. But I mean, it makes sense on sort of lateral revenue, doesn't it? You know, Ford does have a brand. I mean, if you own a Ford, you're probably like a serial Ford owner. So you you sort of have a uh, an alignment with the brand that actually means that this type of product you would take insurance from those guys or a credit card or whatever you know, um, but I mean it is an interesting one to sort of see how it plays out. I mean I, I remember doing telematics in like two thousand and six I think it was, but we had to get like a four hour procedure to put like a gigantic thing under the driver's seat. It's come on a little bit way now, which is good. I think to your point, one of the other risks is that. A lot of consumers especially assume that more data means it's going to benefit them. So I think especially driving, a lot of people think they're probably, most people probably don't think they're that bad of a driver. And so the problem is when you have them tracking how you're driving and your premium actually goes maybe up versus where it was before, people aren't going to like that. And so I think to your point of having sort of the NPS scores, it's that it can very quickly almost hurt them because people think that, no, I'm a much better driver than the average driver when most likely they're not. Well, I was going to say that. I'm not sure. I think everybody thinks they're a good driver, but the reality is that everybody tries to get away with stuff and just hope they don't get caught, right? So so this has been usually like the thing against telematics is like everybody knows that they speed and everybody hopes they don't get caught on it. And everybody thinks it's somebody else's problem rather than their problem. So, I mean, it's a hard thing, isn't it? Does this... In, in a real sense, if we start doing one-to-one scoring from an insurance perspective, doesn't it fundamentally sort of break the risk model? That was a deep question. I got deep then. Sorry, I'll go back to talking about pets in a no, minute. No, no, let, let's delay on that. I think that's a, I think that's a fascinating point. Uh, and I do think telematics is indicative of where insurance is going over the coming years. Data is going to allow us to asymptote towards precision underwriting. Mm-hmm. You'll never quite get there, but it'll get closer and closer and closer. Um, And I think that overall, my perspective at least, is that that's a good thing. Um, Insurance is about uh, pooling, and that won't change, to your point. The the model will still be we all pool resources. But how much do we pay into that pool? And the closer we can get to paying into the pool in a way that is commensurate with the risk that we introduce to the pool, so much the better. You avoid um, adverse selection, and there's a fairness to it. Uh, My expected loss should be representative of how much I pay into the pool. And today we have fairly crude groupings because our data is still reasonably crude by historical standards. And that, A, produces something that's not always fair because I may be subsidizing you, which really means that I'm externalizing your bad behavior. I'm rewarding it because we're both, the, the data isn't rich enough to distinguish between us. So I'm subsidizing your bad behavior, which encourages bad behavior, which isn't good for anybody. It suddenly feels very personal. You're like... <laughs> <laughs> the listeners didn't know that I was pointing at you. Yeah. They thought I was pointing at Jillian. Anyway. <laughs> <laughs> but 
and then the, the the second thing that happens is you start getting into really messy territory of unfair discrimination mm. because you start getting into if you, when you only have crude measures those measures may proxy gender race or other protected classes uh, women are better drivers than men should we be charging men more than women even though the, the the curves clearly overlap and there are some men who are better than some women do we want to tar people with the same brush and when you only have crude data sets it's unavoidable that you will do that and you'll end up with these proxies and all those troubles i think as you subdivide those groups again and again and again and again you start breaking down things you're no longer proxying anything you're getting closer and closer to charging each of us something commensurate with the risk that we introduce and i think in terms of fairness and goodness for society that's got to be a good thing yeah, I mean, I mean, yes, but potentially then excluding people dramatically out of things. Because I, I guess to your point, there is, uh, it is just fact that young men are worse drivers or more prone to accidents than anybody, and actually that could almost completely push people out of the market. I remember my my first car insurance being more expensive than my car, like almost double. Do you know what I mean in terms of what it was? Because a seventeen-year-old who lives in out in the sticks in 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 England is way more likely to have a crash because the roads are like this this wide and you know there's no light. So I mean, you could, to your point, actually by being very 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 specific on risk, you could actually make it almost impossible for people to get car insurance in some instances, which for me would be terrible because I would have never got out of the tiny little village I lived in. So, but. Uh, but this gives the mechanism to say that, yeah, I may, in this broad strokes, be high risk. Yeah. Look at the specific data of what risk I'm actually applying. Sure. And then give the chance. Prove it. Yeah, yeah. Pr- prove it, right? Mm-hmm. And then if you are a risky driver, you should be paying <laughs> higher car insur- uh, higher higher insurance rates. So th- this incentivizes that positive behavior, which is better for all of us. I mean, as it turned out, I did write off two cars. So they were right. <laughs> Well, I think that's where we want a lot of insurance to go. It would be really hard for the large insurers to do this and sort of from a lot of conversations with them and just like from my fascination with all these new data sets that they can use to better be able to underwrite, a lot of them don't really want that because most of the time it'll prove that they've been underwriting people wrong in a bad way and so that they're actually undercharging people instead of the point before that then they have to pay, they have to charge people more, that hurts their relationship with their customer. And so I think they're kind of between a rock and a hard place because while they do want to understand and be able to use the insights that we can get from data, it's probably not going to work to their benefit and it would have to revamp their entire underwriting model. Mm -hmm. So I think there's a lot more opportunity for new insurance companies to actually be able to do it and better serve the customers rather than the older ones. Yeah. I mean, you could, to your point, when you start looking at autonomous vehicles and this, uh, I mean, you can get to a point where it's not just driving behaviors, but at, like where you're driving. Do you know what I mean? Like your your ability, I mean, try and drive through Times Square, like your ability to crash is going to be a lot higher, right? Given all of the stuff that's got. If it's it, raining. Yeah. Exactly. Uh, or just, I mean, I meant the thousand TV screens that are distracting you right now. But uh, but it's, it is an interesting one. I think, to your point, how data then starts to change how risk pooling works, I think is just such a fascinating topic across so many different types of insurance, though, because it completely it changes what insurance is, fundamentally. I think it does. And this is a founding um, thesis of Lemonade. Mm. Um, and I'm sure of a lot of the investments that you're making. And Oscar is really the the charted the way for the rest of us um, taking these kind of approaches. I think with or without Lemonade, with or without Oscar, this isn't down to any one company. I think this represents a secular shift in society that heralds big structural challenges to traditional companies for the reasons that Julian just enumerated. In the 1600s, um, humanity discovered um, statistics. 
and um, Bernoulli discovered the law of large numbers and all that kind of stuff. Every insurance company that existed up until the late 1600s went out of business because of that new technology. And then you have folks like Aviva that you know well and Lloyd's that came of age during that time and have survived for hundreds of years. Mm. And I think it might not be hyperbolic to say that the kind of structural changes that we're seeing today in data are akin to what happened You've got to go back 300 years to see as seismic a shift as it's happening. It won't mean that anybody collapses overnight, but the guys who dominated for 100, 200, 300 years may have a real struggle dominating for the next 100 years for that reason. Exciting. I mean, isn't it a great time to be in insurance? Like, uh, th- like, as you say, it's like everything kind of changing in such a major way. I mean, something that's not a good time is probably the next story to, to sort of move on to. So this is a story over in Insurance Journal, which is coronavirus impact on the insurance industry. Um, I mean, I have to say it's like it is affecting day-to-day life, not just because people are getting more and more um, kind of catastrophic of the language that's being – I mean, it's being – put on the media as like virus X now, which essentially sounds like the beginning of some sort of zombie apocalypse movie, doesn't it? But I mean, the impact of it is reasonably significant. Um, A quote here from Wilson Elsa, who is um, an expert in the space is, there is almost no aspect of the insurance business that would not be impacted by a global pandemic, which is pretty broad brush strokes. But I guess if you kind of think about the impact that this can have on businesses of all different types, uh, and actually... People have been looking at uh, catastrophe-tested insurance and ensuring that people are prepared for these things in terms of uh, the businesses. It's a pretty terrifying prospect. I mean, uh, are you feeling nervous about this yet? Like, other than, like, washing your hands about a thousand more times than you would have done beforehand, then, I mean, is it really starting to impact your business? Uh, So, no, it hasn't started to impact our business, but it doesn't mean it can't, right? And it impacts us potentially in two ways. Uh, You know, first, from a a business continuity perspective, right? So, how do we, you know, make sure that our employees are safe and that our operations are up and stable? And, you know, certainly we have lots of strategies and uh, business continuity plans and uh, how we operate as a distributed workforce that, like, makes us in a strong position and feel very comfortable there if that we were put under pressure that we would be able to support our members. And then uh, on the Upside, we are a health insurance company, right? And our, our target is how do we, you know, ensure that our members are supported, have access to the care they need, and have access to the care quickly. Uh, and you know, similar to like any other potential catastrophe, you know, we have had to mobilize in very you know quick terms because of wildfires in California or um, you know hurricanes down in Florida, and how to make sure that despite what a member's plan is or who is in their network or the relationships they have their doctor, how do we make sure that if if, you know, if all else fails, how do they get access to their meds? And we remove any of the administrative burden that comes with dealing with and running an insurance company doesn't prevent people from getting the care they need because ultimately that's why we exist, right? And is how do we make sure that all the tools, the strategies, the technology, our product, our, our concierge teams, our doctor on call ability uh, is there and available for our members in real time when they have that need. And that's kind of how we're thinking about it today. Mm. Yeah, I mean, it's particularly interesting I mean, we at 11FS have never had to have a pandemic policy before, but actually you need to start thinking about these things, right? It's actually, given we we have people kind of working all over the globe, then it's like, if somebody comes back from Singapore and is sick, it's like, what do we do? Like, what's the stay at home for two weeks policy or the, you know, how do we support people for those things? So, I mean, it's, we live in interesting times, you know, actually having to sort of deal with these different types of things, right? What do you think? No, I think absolutely. And I think especially in my team is based in New York, London. Um, people are constantly traveling, especially across Europe. 
Um, and so it's definitely something that has come to mind. We're hosting an event in late March in London, and that was something that yesterday a few of us started to question, like, should we actually be going? Like, we're a very um, separated team, and like, we're very good at using Zoom. <laughs> do we do some sort of a conference that way? Nobody gets sick over Zoom, do they? And exactly. It's, it should be one of their selling points. Right? Exactly. <laughs> maybe their stock. I saw that Peloton stock was going up because people don't want to go to the gym gym anymore. Okay. So maybe same thing for Zoom. Yeah. Um, but I definitely think it's something that more and more if things keep kind of going in the direction that they are, people have to think about. And I think like from an insurance Katashi market, I think the business interruption will be the most interesting um, one because I think prior to it, depending on what policies you had, some sort of payout could happen. But now that we're kind of in the midst of it, if you try to get it now, given that it's sort of a known risk, Mm. really even be able to get coverage and so like what does that mean going forward Um, yeah i mean even if you kind of think all the way through the value chain for you know tech manufacturing we're talking about you know chips that are being manufactured in china are we gonna suddenly start seeing i mean it's it's a it's reasonably trife isn't it it's like I'm going to get pissed off because I can't get an iPhone in like six months time. But like, it's it's a real thing that, exactly. yeah. So, I mean, it, but the impact that that could have on American businesses in a, you know, a three to nine month window actually could be really, really yeah. significant. So what do you think, Daniel? Our business is relatively um, untouched by this. So we're, we're doing property and casualty, so it doesn't really affect us. The business continuity issues that affect every business affect us, but we are pretty virtual and distributed. So I think we're relatively in a good shape. So other than being kind of citizens and humans who care about these things from a, I don't know that I have anything intelligent to say. <laughs> well, uh, I mean, from one thing that's uh, pretty uh, scary to uh, another one. So um, the fear of sort of coronavirus has been urging travelers to upgrade uh, to cancel for any reason insurance plans, which is a weird one. So this is something that was over on Forbes. Uh, The fear of catching the coronavirus grows and skittish travelers are protecting themselves uh, on future trips with insurance policies that come with an escape clause. Uh, I'm not sure if it's a literal, like, you escape and then we'll pay out, or it's actually escaping from the policy in the first place. But standard travel insurance policies will not cover trip cancellations due to fear of contracting coronavirus. Uh, only by upgrading a policy that includes a cancel-for-any-reason benefit can fearful travelers obtain the coverage that they're actually searching for. I mean, this is, I mean, this is again, it's a real thing. A lot of people spend an amazing amount of their savings to go on, like, trips of a lifetime to then... Well, the fear of like that trip turning into some sort of death trap uh, is is a thing, right? So, um, people making sure that they've actually got the policies that actually cover them for the types of cancellations that they might want to do. I mean, how how do you guys kind of cover cover this one? Is it again? Is it from a uh, not just obviously from a travel insurance perspective, but the just the clarity of actually what people are covered for and what they're not? So we don't have that uh, um, policy at all. But I just wonder out loud, uh, as we're kind of um, riffing on this topic, whether the window, this is not a particularly optimistic um, thing I'm going to say, but whether the window where this is relevant is fairly narrow. And what I mean by that is that I think that the way things are going pretty soon, America is going to be the same as Europe, is going to be the same as Asia. So at the moment, it's like Wuhan and nobody wants to go there. But as of a couple of days ago, it was Milan and Italy. And I suspect that my sense from a total amateur's perspective is that um, us as humanity's attempt to conquer this thing and contain it 
um, is looking a lot less successful now than it was just a while ago. Mm. And once it becomes pandemic, you might as well travel because staying at home is no safer than going somewhere else. It's very true. I mean, reading in the taxi on just the way here, a uh, building has been evacuated in Canary Wharf in London. So it's like, you know, it is it is everywhere now, which is which is pretty terrifying, isn't it? You know, it just looks like a movie. Um, so, but it's, yeah, I'm not sure, um, I'm not sure it's quite like chicken pox where it's like, if you're going to get it, you might as well get it. But, uh, so, uh, but, um, I mean, hopefully they're going to get this one, um, this one under control because it sort of puts everything into perspective at that stage, doesn't it? It's like, we sort of go about our lives and do interesting things, but actually, you know, this thing can kind of come along and just wipe everything out, you know? I, I wonder if you're overstating things somewhat and talking about the interesting times we live in, you know, the Black Plague and stuff like that wiped out a quarter of humanity and stuff like that. We're talking about something with a mortality rate of maybe 2%. Sure. Um, so far, despite many thousands of deaths, no young people dying from it. I'm not trying to trivialize it. Sure. It's 10 to 20 times more lethal than the flu that killed 60,000 people in America last year. And it's more contagious. So it's a seriously nasty thing. But the apocalypse isn't coming as a result of of the coronavirus, as far as I can tell. I completely. Well, I hope. Hopefully, I agree. Um, I, I guess it's um, the difficulty is every young person knows an old person, so it's like um, you know. I think it, I, like you say, it's. Um, I think nobody under the age of about forty has died from it, have they? Um, but it's particularly sort of negative for anybody over sixty five, isn't it? Um, so it's it's difficult, isn't it? I, I mean, I I, um, I definitely was asked by my mum and my wife if I needed to make this trip because it's like anywhere where you basically need to be in a situation where you're around thousands of other people it's not really when you're there it's the airport uh and it's yeah it's a it's a weird one but it's like you say it's one of those things that um given everything else that's going on it's like the weird thing you have to think about on a business trip but uh, yeah, so it's great that uh, i think companies are emerging for this need that um you know give people the oppor- the opportunity to to buy this upgraded insurance if they feel that they need it and it gives them some comfort uh it could be also seen that potentially taking advantage some from of fear that people have and, mm. and profiting off of it uh but depending on you know who you are if you are really at risk if you are in those you know at risk populations where, where those deaths had occurred like this could be a great thing to have and it's better to have that option than to not have that option yeah i agree okay uh moving on over on payments we have uh policy genius got some hefty investment so policy genius notches a hundred million dollars for insurtech growth the company which launched in 2014 has 60 million in annual revenue ceo jennifer fitzgerald said the firm isn't focused on exit paths through to a sale or stock market offering but has its eye firmly on growth last year the company added a second headquarters over in north carolina to join its new york location I mean, that's a pretty big raise, um, you know, $100 million for growth uh, to add, I, I guess, more distribution and go into more products. But what have you guys seen about these guys over here? How well are they doing so far? I mean, to have been in a situation where they've got $60 million and, and your revenue is doing pretty well, right? So Policy Genius, I think, is doing incredibly well. Uh, and I think the space is getting a lot of attention as well. And there's just been a lot of activity and investment going into the price comparison market. So you've had at least within the insure tech space, broadly, four companies raised. Um, but then within price comparison, and this is just in 2020, um, and within price comparison, you've had Insurify and Zebra both. And so I think they're kind of in the right space at the right time. And it makes sense, kind of get a lot more money to continue to push on the pedal for growth. I mean, um, obviously, from your perspective, Daniel, you've raised, was it 480 million? I mean, every time you sort of get that big raise, how do you, do you see it as a... 
major opportunity for, for kind of expansion at that time. Because I've, I've sort of talked to founders in the past where the obviously the business case that you put forward for these things when you're looking for those rounds and then the reality of what the market does and how you need to sort of invest. But it must, 100 million must come with a pretty big, big plan to, to kind of expand out, right? You'd hope so, and I can't speak for them. Gillian um, knows this stuff much better than I do, and I'm sure it's well-deserved and that they're doing really well. It is interesting to see in America, price comparison has not been a dominant force. <clears throat> um, in the UK, the market is just transformed by it, mm. and the price comparison sites often outspend the insurance brands in terms of marketing. So it's really inverted relative to what's happened here. And in the US, you find um, whether they coordinate or not, the largest brands have been refusing to cooperate with the price comparison sites and have managed to resist that tremendous pull. But it changes the dynamics of the market in in powerful, powerful Mm. ways. And time will tell how that plays out. Yeah, and not in a necessary, I mean, people, for anybody who doesn't know, there's a website called compare the market where people basically buy policies based on getting a cuddly toy which is weird like it's a really weird thing but um but to your point it's it's actually hurt i think the insurance market in in the uk because essentially people have commoditized products into features that they don't really necessarily understand so uh price being a very good one i I agree I, i i i don't love it I'm not talking about any of the brands that Julian just mentioned, but as a concept, I don't love it. And I don't, even though it seems like it's very customer-focused because you're sharing everything, I think it may hurt customers. Mm. Um, That flattening effect of reducing it down to a single number means that quality and how much you care and business model and response times and likelihood to pay and all those things pretty much fall by the wayside, which then punishes companies who invest in good quality of service because they won't get that in in, in neon lights on the shopping comparison sites will be a secondary or tertiary kind of thing. So I think it can damage um, ultimately the the customer experience. And what you also find, I think, in the UK, a market that I do not know well, um, is that rather than saving money, what happens is that those shopping comparison sites will rebid those customers out time and again. So you get very high attrition rates, much higher than you have in the US. And given the cost of acquisition, ultimately, there's more dollars spent and consumed with lower loyalty. So I think both the quality and the cost end up suffering through the dominance of these shopping comparison sites in broad strokes. Yeah, it very much changes the way in which those policies need to be structured, for sure. I remember, you know, we were hit with that at Aviva, actually, when I was at Aviva, because essentially after year two, your policies start to make sense. Uh, So if you lose them at the end of year one, you're constantly paying for customers that you never really get the benefit from. Uh, Did you have another point? And I think ironically, to your point, Daniel, that people actually end up doing less research on the insurance policies that they're getting because then at that point, they're just looking at the headline number of the price. And so oftentimes, as you said, people can get worse uh, policies and coverage, even though the idea that they're looking at sort of comparison websites is inherently that they're trying to shop around and find the best coverage, but it ends up just being price-focused. So Sarah Konchansky from the team actually managed to go and have a chat with Jennifer Fitzgerald, the CEO of Policy Genius. So let's hear what she had to say. I'm Sarah Kachansky, and it is my pleasure to be joined by Jennifer Fitzgerald, CEO and co-founder of Policy Genius, the tech startup helping people to get the financial protection they need. Jennifer, thank you so much for coming on the show. How are you today? I'm good. Thanks for having me on the show. Um, so to start us off, can you please give us a quick overview of what Policy Genius is? 
Sure. Policy Genius is an online digital marketplace in the U.S. Uh, we help consumers shop for, research, and buy insurance uh, across all types of insurance, from life insurance to home insurance uh, to health insurance and everything in between. So, um, so how did the company come about? Like, What problem is it that you guys are trying to solve? The big problem that my co-founder and I saw before starting the company was around distribution. So before starting the company, he and I were both consultants. We were advising uh, a lot of the top insurance companies in the U.S. and uh, specifically focused on growth and distribution. And there are a couple key challenges in the U.S. right now. So one is the main distribution model is still the brick-and-mortar insurance agent. Uh, Two, that brick-and-mortar insurance agent sales force is getting older and close to retiring. The average age in the U.S. is 59 years old. Um, 30% of those agents are looking to retire, get out of the business uh, in a few years' time. So um, what we saw was a burning platform around distribution. uh, And that's just the secular trends in insurance. Beyond that, consumers in the U.S. are used to an online, self-directed, you know, very easy experience, whether it's seamless for food or Amazon for everything else. Um, They wanted something that was digital, with choice, you know, an online managed marketplace. So we saw that huge opportunity back in 2014, which is when we started the company. Um, amazing. So, so you've been around a while then. You're, you're, you're not uh, new to the, to the digital uh, insurance space. We are not. We were one of the uh, early pioneers of insure tech in the US. So, um, so I'm guessing that things have changed a bit in the last four years. Um, and I'm thinking particularly uh, around the idea of pricing and, and how, how digital providers have, have made uh, pr- the price of insurance change. In most cases, it's dropped. Um, can you tell us a little bit about what's, you know, the, the, the pricing knife fight in digital insurance? So there, I mean, there's been even before InsurTech was a thing and before um, digital really became uh, a dominant model in insurance, uh, insurance has always been very price competitive, right? So if you think about how the carriers make money, how they acquire market share, pricing is the big lever. And consumers can be very price conscious when it comes to their premiums on their home insurance or their life insurance. So that was something that predated, you know, this wave of insure tech. Life insurance, for example, has been on a downward trend in price for the past 20 or 30 years. Um, home and auto, as those pricing models have gotten more sophisticated, um, the margin between the top carrier in a market and the number three carrier in a market has gotten narrow and narrow. So that's been something that's been happening for a long time. I think what digital has done uh, has just made that more transparent to the consumer. And when consumers have more transparency into how a market works, obviously the some of the power can shift then from, from the seller of insurance to the buyer of insurance. And that's the change that digital has accelerated in the industry. So, so with that in mind, um, why would you launch a, a marketplace rather than, uh, you know, uh, just doing a, a direct distribution channel for a particular type of insurance or, or indeed, you know, starting your own insurtech company that focuses on a particular type of insurance? Well, because of that exact pricing dynamic, right? When you're an insurance company, you are very much in a pricing competition with everybody else. And with some exceptions, insurance basically is uh, a commodity to consumers, right? Nobody has overarching brand loyalty to a particular carrier. Price is often the biggest decision maker when you're making a decision between carrier A and carrier B. Uh, Why would I want to subject myself to that, right? When I could be the layer and the platform that owns the customer relationship, regardless of which carrier they have their policy with. And that's the idea behind Policy Genius. 
we have the market on the platform. So uh, if c carriers reprice, you know, it's good for the consumers. And as long as we have consumers on our platform, that's good for us. So are you um, unusual in offering this model in the US? Because it, it sounds sort of similar to, to a lot of the, the way that people buy insurance in the UK in particular, but also in other parts of Europe, you know, we're used to kind of the marketplace model. That's where most people go for their insurance. Are you, are you, do, you do you stand out? Are you, is this an unusual model? Uh, we're unusual to the extent that we don't just uh, generate leads and sell them to carriers. We are full stack in terms of brokerage. So you do the entire transaction with us. There are models. So, for example, EverQuote, which is a public company in the U.S., uh, that is a quote unquote marketplace, uh, but you actually can't do the full transaction. So you'll click on a carrier and then they will pass you off to that carrier. We don't do that. You bind the whole transaction with us. Your relationship with us is with us. We are the broker and the intermediary on the back end through the whole transaction. So if I had to, to make a claim on a policy bought through you, would I do that through Policy Genius? You could do it through us or you go directly through the carrier. The distinction is less on the claim side and more um, you click on a logo on our site and then you just have to go start over again on that carrier's website. That's what you have to do with a lot of providers in the US, not with us. So they're literally just giving you a shopping list, but then you actually have to go to the shop to buy it. Correct. Um, so perfect. So, so whereabouts are you guys based? Where are you headquartered? We're in New York City, and we just opened up a second headquarters in North Carolina a few months ago. So, um, so, so why New York? Uh, you know, I, I don't know if you're already based there, but you know, is New York a particular uh, insurtech hub? Uh, it is now. I mean, when we started the company, InsureTech wasn't even a word. <laughs> so there were just a couple of us working in the space. Uh, Oscar, the big health insurance company, uh, us, and then maybe a couple others. So InsureTech wasn't really a sector. New York certainly wasn't the InsureTech hub. We were already based here. Uh, and if you think about, you know, tech startup hubs in the US. It's been the Bay Area in New York. And that was certainly the case when we started the company back in 2014. And we already both lived here. So it just made sense to, to keep going. And uh, as you said, there's, there's a lot more insure tech in, in New York now. Um, what about you said North Carolina? What why why there? So we were looking for um, a city where, one, it's a little bit uh, less expensive to uh, grow a big workforce, uh, get real estate, uh, and two, had a lot of talent across both operations and tech talent. So we looked at several cities, Pittsburgh, which is increasingly a hub for uh, bigger tech companies, uh, the Durham Research Triangle area and a few other cities and, and Durham really stood out for us. Um, there are there's probably a higher concentration of colleges and universities in and around Durham, North Carolina than any other city in the country. Oh, so that's fascinating. So it's, so it's, a, it's a tech hub or a talent hub rather than insurance hub. Correct. Brilliant. So I imagine we'll see, um, see more, more, more fintechs coming out of there or more insurtechs bases out that way soon then. Yeah, you're already seeing a few of them uh, plant flags there. Uh, well, we'll keep an eye on it for, for certain. Um, so just to just change track a little bit here and look at maybe some of the um, the areas uh, that InsureTech has, has, has kind of helped and supported in particular. Um, and, and what about the, the, the gig economy and gig workers? I'm just thinking because given that you're based in New York, and I know New York has an awful lot of gig economy workers, um, is that a group that, uh, you know, you, you, you guys serve on your platform? And is it, is it a group that's like, you know, everybody says it's desperately underserved. Do you find that to be the case? We do find that to be the case. 
Uh, we find a lot of gig economy workers, people who are self-employed, small business owners. Uh, in the U.S., it's a it's a different model uh, than the U.K., for example. When you work for an employer, typically your health insurance and a lot of your core insurance benefits are provided through the employment relationship. As people sever traditional employment relationships, they have to become their own benefits provider. So platforms like ours make it easy to, you know, get the insurance coverage that you would normally get through your employer. And do you find um, many uh, many providers are actually underwriting those policies or are you having to go out and sort of uh, spur the, the insurers on just to create those policies? So it's a bit of a mix. You know, health insurance has long been... Uh, especially since the Affordable Care Act uh, back in 2012, 2013, when it passed. Uh, Health insurance on the private market has been geared toward people who don't have it through their employer. Uh, What we're finding is that for other types of insurance, uh, such as disability insurance, which in the UK you call income protection and other types, uh, carriers are now waking up to the opportunity for the gig economy and the self-employed worker. And we're working with them and using our data to figure out how to either create new products or alter existing products to, to cater to the needs of that population. And um, are there any other, you know, uh, t- types of, um, uh, any other types of uh, demographic that you find are particularly underserved that are, that are coming to you guys? That's, in terms of being underserved, uh, that's probably the biggest one, the gig economy, self-employed population. And quite frankly, we serve consumers across the board. So all 50 states, every income range, uh, every age demographic, um, you know, people ask us, oh, a specific type of consumer must use you. No, the fact is that everybody, whether you're 30 years old or 55 years old, you interact digitally with your service providers. You use Amazon, you use Expedia, you use Seamless to order food. Um, so our our platform is no different from that. And I guess particularly as people, as you say, become more and more price sensitive, then they're more willing to go out and look online for, for kind of the thing that, that best meets their budget. Yep. Everybody starts with Google. <laughs> so if you're looking for anything, you typically you start your journey with Google. Uh, so you know, online is the channel of choice predominantly, even for complicated transactions like insurance. No, that makes perfect sense. Um, so what, what's next for Policy Genius? What, what's, what's next on your agenda? So we have launched uh, product lines across all major uh, verticals for insurance in the U.S. So life insurance has been our, our big focus. We launched uh, home and auto insurance last year, which is growing very, very quickly. We're going to continue to expand our market share in those core verticals. Uh, we are also this year um, going to push beyond traditional insurance to think more broadly about financial protection, uh, advice, uh, we already do that with our content. We're one of the leading content providers, not just around insurance, but personal finance generally. Um, so now we're thinking about the advice and financial planning needs that our consumers need in order to, um, you know, prepare themselves for, you know, uh, worst case scenarios, right? So you don't typically go search for insurance in a vacuum. When you buy life insurance, for example, it's typically because something has happened in your life, such as buying a home or getting married or having a child. Uh, And when that life event happens, it's not just life insurance that gets triggered. Typically, you need uh, a whole laundry list of things because you're in a different stage of life. So our consumers have been asking us to help them with uh, other needs because they're coming to us at that time in their life. So we're thinking through what that looks like and we're excited to expand our reach uh, this year. Well, that does sound super exciting. Do keep us in the loop on that. we Will do. Um, Jennifer, thank you so much for joining me today. Uh, where can people find out more about you and what you're doing with Policy Genius? Do you have a, a Twitter handle, a website? 
Sure. Our website is uh, policygenius.com. Uh, our Twitter handle is at policygenius. And then my personal Twitter handle is at Jen L. Fitzgerald. Thanks very much for your time for Jennifer. Uh, really, really interesting to see what Policy Genius is up to. All right, guys, that's probably all we have time for this week. Uh, thank you very much for everybody for joining us. Gillian, uh, where can people find out more about you and everything that you're doing at Anthemus? Yeah, of course. Well, always on Anthemus, which is our website's anthemus.com, but then also on Twitter. And my handle is JillWillNYC. Awesome. Jill Will. Nice. That's that's good. Do you know how many people have really embarrassing Twitter? Like just getting people to read out their Twitter handles is always really good fun. Yeah, mine's simple. <laughs> Brett, where can people find out more about you? Uh, so people, um, I'm probably not that interesting, but um, uh, can find more about Oscar at HiOscar.com and our, our Twitter and Instagram handle at OscarHealth. Fantastic. Daniel, where can people find out more about you and Lemonade? Lemonade.com. Done. Nice and easy. All right. And as for me, you can find me on LinkedIn at David Breer. You'll be able to, I mean, B-R-E-I-R. The amount of times I have to spell my surname is getting silly. Thank you to all of our guests, Daniel, Jillian, and Brett. And as always, if you've got any comments on the show, hit us up at podcast at 11fs.com. Thanks for listening this week, guys. Goodbye. Hold up. 